Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. I do believe that the culture war is what has essentially divided the United States. And it has only gotten worse with the rise of the radical homosexual movement, the rise of the radical transgender movement, and the fact that they are now imposing this on school children. I mean, I, I think in some ways, therefore, Rod Dreher is right on the soft totalitarianism. And yes, so I think the fundamental divide in this country is not over economics. It's not over foreign policy. It's the moral issues which are essentially dividing the United States. You just listened to Austin Ruse from my interview coming up. Austin Ruse heads the New York-based Center for Family and Human Rights, CFAM, and it's active at the United Nations. Austin was a founder of the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast and founding columnist at the CatholicThing.org. And he has a new book out, Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. The bishops have never gone squirrely on the life issues. Think about that. The bishops have never gone squirrely on the great third rail, contraception. Mm. Uh, The bishops have never gone squirrely on marriage. So on the one hand, they have not done enough. On the other hand, they have held firm to the teachings of the church on these most important issues. And even if the bishops aren't as involved as we wish them to be, does not let us off the hook for the work that we are supposed to be doing. And that's what I tell everybody. It doesn't matter if your bishop is not involved. You know, get your sign and go to a demonstration. Stand outside an abortion clinic and say the rosary. Now, you may be tempted to think Austin Ruse is feeling down and dejected about his beloved Catholic Church, but he is exactly the opposite, upbeat and full of hope. It's a great time to be a Catholic. That, that's the message of the book, and, and I think I make a very strong case. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Welcome to my latest episode. So glad our audience keeps growing. And thank you for all your positive feedback and support. In a wee moment, we'll get to our interview with Austin Ruse, author of a new book, Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. Austin takes us back in time and then to the present and lays out how America has arrived at this moment in time, well, some would say this dark moment in history. He'll have something to say about our Catholic bishops and church leaders, but Austin will keep coming back to the central question of morality in our world and the Catholic Church, from abortion to gender identity politics. Whether you agree with Austin Ruse or not, he truly lays out a fascinating case. The law of the land in the United States also figures prominently in my interview with Austin Ruse. So, 
I want to share with you Austin's take on the US Supreme Court with a 6-3 conservative leaning majority and talk of packing the courts. He has this to say on the repeal of the pro-abortion Roe v. Wade decision, a wish of pro-lifers. Everyone, Austin Roos says, always has known it would take at least six justices to overturn Roe, though seven would be better. No one wants to be the fifth vote in a 5-4 decision to overturn something so volatile. Austin goes on, we worry about Justice Roberts, so it could very well be 5-4, which means it might not happen. Austin also says this, quote, what I see is the Supreme Court continuing to chip away at Roe v. Wade. For instance, he says, the case just upheld in the Sixth Circuit Court that abortions for Down syndrome would not be legal. End of quote. Finally, Austin tells me, it is certainly clear that the United States is passing an unprecedented number of pro-life laws. If Roe is eventually chipped away and even overturned, the issue will return to the individual states in America and then we have a 50-state battle. End of quote. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Austin Ruse, author of Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. Austin heads up the Centre for Family and Human Rights, CFAM. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Austin Ruse, welcome to my show. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. I just finished up reading your new book. It's a great read. And we'll talk about that in a moment you lead a group called CFAM stands for what? Well, it's it's kind of a nickname for uh, it's for Center for Family and Human Rights, and we're a, a, a New York and Washington D.C. based research institute working exclusively on international social and legal policy. Most of our work is at the United Nations, assisting UN delegates in negotiating documents. We just finished a document a couple of weeks ago. We're in the midst of another document right now. And our, our mission essentially is to ensure that abortion does not become an internationally recognized human right. We've been successful with that. To uh, ensure that the family is not redefined, we've been successful with that. But uh, but yeah, basically we fight uh, the culture war at uh, at the UN, also in Washington, D.C., um, where D.C. is involved in international legal and social policy. It's important to note that you are a convert to Catholicism. You are raised Methodist. That's correct. I was raised uh, a Methodist and kind of got the call to join the church 
while I was in college, although it took me a good long time to do it. Uh, it you know, I, this, this all mostly happened in the 70s and 80s, and none of the Catholics that I knew could tell me what books to read. So I kind of had to find out on my own. Um, and, and then uh, ended up converting uh, at the age of 29. So yes, I am, I am a convert. Now, I read somewhere, tell me if this is correct, that you are a descendant of the early English colonists in the U.S. That's right. Uh, the Roos family came to the United States from England uh, in the 1740s, and uh, my ancestor um, fought in the Revolutionary War. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've been around a good long while. Uh, he, they settled in Virginia. I live in Virginia. Uh, so, yeah, my ancestors are, are, were all around me. Well, that's good to know. Well, I am a naturalized U.S. citizen, an Irish immigrant. Congratulations. So I hope we get along here. I think we will. <laughs> well, we do share our Catholic faith in common, and but I have a lot of people on the show of all faiths and no faiths, secular, and they're all interesting, and it's good to hear them out. I want to talk about your latest book. It's your fourth. That's and correct. it's called Under Siege. No finer time to be a faithful Catholic. That part of the book really defines what it's about, because you repeat that in the book, that that's really the central message of your book. No finer time to be a faithful Catholic. It, you pack a lot into it um, about where we got here today. You uh, have a very positive message because there's a lot of despair in church circles, maybe defeatism. We hear talk about the scandals in the church, declining vocations, culture wars, we're losing them. Some people say the church is going bankrupt. And then there's a lot of conflict over identity politics. So there's a lot, but you take a different approach to all of this. And so just tell us about the book, maybe some kind of a summary, uh, why you wrote it and what we can expect to get out of it. I have been giving a talk now for many, many years called No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. Essentially, the, the talk and the book that came from the talk make the case that we are living through among the darkest times in, in human history, and yet God called us to this time to defend his creation. And the way that we should look upon that is what a remarkable blessing, because he knew what was going to be happening. He knew that things were going to fall apart. He knew the rise of, of radical secularism and uh, new, new religions. Um, and he knew all of this. And yet he sent the likes of you and me and the people that are watching this right now. And so people have to understand that what a remarkable blessing it is that he sent us at this time. I say in the book, there are halos hanging from the lowest branches of the trees. Uh, all you need to do is reach up and grab one. Um, so th th that is essentially the book. I mean, there's, there's much more to it. I go into great detail in the book about how dark things are. People, I do this professionally. <laughs> there's a line from T.S. Eliot. I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. And that's how I view myself. I am Lazarus. Okay. And um, I look at things that other people advert their eyes from. So there's, I tell a story in the book about how dark things truly are. Um, I talk about a company called MindGeek that nobody's really heard of. 
but they're the ones that invented uh, online pornography. And they now have more traffic than Facebook um, and they have more traffic than Twitter, but most people have not heard of them. And, and then I make the case that we're living through one of the most remarkable epics that the church has ever known. I go into great detail about certain things that have happened starting in, in 2002 and down to the present day that show that the world is obsessed with the Catholic Church. The world cannot get enough of the Catholic Church. And that's further evidence that we're living through this remarkable time. Look at the great debate that we're having. I mean, the, the sort of the mega debate that we're having in the world today, and that is, what is the human person? That is on par with the kind of debates that they had in the early church about well, who is Christ? What is Christ? It is on par with debates that were had um, in the world uh, in the Middle Ages about what is the church? We are, now, we are now participants in one of the great debates in human history, and we should stand in awe of the fact that we are present here and that we can have a piece of this debate if we so choose. And I urge people in the book not to miss this time. You know, there are many ways to miss this time, and one of them is what, what I call Rod Dreherism, and that is to, 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 to live in fear. And if you live in too much fear, then you might just shut down and miss this remarkable time. There are people who live in nostalgia, who long for previous times and, and therefore miss it. There are many people who live uh, through distraction, video games and sports and, and, and all the things that ultimately don't really count and will lead people to, to, to miss the time that we are living right now and the time that he has called us into to defend his creation. So that, that's what the book is about. And, you know, when I have given this talk now for many, many years, at the end, people stand up and cheer because they need to know something good about these times. And the good thing about these times is that he called us and we are here and don't miss it. Uh, you mentioned Rod Dreher. I had him as a guest some time ago. We talked about his new book, Live Not By Lies. Live My Not By Lies. And so in your view, uh, Rod has sort of in retreat, whereas you're sort of doing cartwheels and you're very optimistic. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know that I would describe Rod as in retreat, although in the years that he wrote about the Benedict Option in the very beginning, um, it was literally about retreat. Uh, he has changed it over time. Uh, I mean, he literally called for people to set up uh, Catholic communities around the walls of Clear Creek Abbey in Oklahoma, um, similar to what happened with Benedictine monasteries in the Middle Ages. So he literally called for that. It's, it's subtly changed over time. But I read Rod very deeply for this chapter, and there was actually much more in the book about, about Rod and, and Dreherism uh, in the book that we agreed to take out. But I mean, it, it, to, to Rod, every minute is um, almost the end of civilization. I mean, he was very rattled and, and fearful about uh, peak oil. He thought that our civilization was going to end over peak oil. He thought that we were the civilization was going to end over Y2K. He thinks that the, the civilization is going to end over what he calls soft totalitarianism. The COVID pandemic was almost a gift to Rod because he absolutely believed that everything was going to end. So he's like one of those guys, and I, I, I knew Rod well many, many years ago in New York City, 
Um, he's like one of those guys walking around New York City with the sign. The, the end is the end is near. So I, I think that you can miss a tremendous amount by living in that kind of fear. Now he'll deny, and he has denied because I wrote a column about this that that he lives in fear, and that I I don't really know about his personal life these days and things like that. But in his writing, he instills fear in people, um, and I, and I think that that is an encouragement to some people to um, to miss this time. Your book takes us back to some very key turning points in American history. The landmark decision to remove school prayer. And that led on to other things. Can you take us from that period on? Well, um, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that uh, we now have an established church in this country, uh, like they had an established church in, uh, like they have an established church in, in, in England. And the established church in this country is built around sexual immorality. And, and I, I, I go back to the school prayer decisions, not to make a case for school prayer, but to show that it was at that moment that in the ongoing debate in this country about what kind of country we are, are we a religious country? Are we a secular country? At that moment, the Supreme Court weighed in on that debate and said, from henceforth, we will be a secular country because they took prayer out of school. And, and what people don't know about that situation is that nobody in the country really wanted to get rid of school and prayer, uh, prayer and school. 13 judges upheld prayer and school until it got to the Supreme Court, and then it was overturned. Every governor in America uh, criticized that decision with the single exception of the uh, governor of New York. Editorials coast to coast condemning the decision. But the key thing about that decision was that was when the federal government and the guys of the, of the Supreme Court put its thumb on the scale in a long time debate about what kind of country we are and determined that we will be a secular country with secular ends. Um, and that led in almost inexorably to a series of decisions that built upon what I consider to be this new religion. Next came the decisions on contraception, the Eisenstadt decision and the Griswold decision, followed shortly by a decision um, on obscenity and determining that uh, obscenity is practically impossible to prosecute. This led to widespread pornography, followed by the Roe v. Wade decision on abortion, followed by a couple of decisions on sodomy and Lawrence v. Texas decision that, that made sodomy a constitutional right, um, followed by same-sex marriage in the Obergefell decision. Now, all of these things are, are sort of codifying a new faith, a new sexual faith that are then imposed upon the rest of the country. And you can go to the local school district here in Fairfax County, Virginia, and you can see how these ideas are now imposed on little children. The idea that uh, sex is assigned at birth, for instance, is now taught as a matter of fact in the Fairfax County School District and, and in many others around the country. This is a religious belief that sex is assigned at birth. It is a religious belief that there's more than, than two sexes, that there are 58 genders, uh, because none of this is based in science. Um, so I, I argue in the book that we have a new established religion 
and the new established religion is very hostile to Christianity uh, and most especially to the Catholic Church. And this is what you see around the country, the persecution of Christians and, and Catholics in, in living out their faith in the public square, in their businesses, and, and, and in many other places. So that, that is a central part of the book, is the idea that is, there's a new established church, and it's not ours. At the time of that uh, school prayer decision, there was an outcry and you make the point that, oh, could you imagine something similar happening today? Things have just turned completely. Well, well yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean what, you, what you see now are the editorialists going completely the other way. Gosh, look at uh, what happened in uh, Arkansas, uh, where the governor vetoed a bill that would have prevented doctors from sexually mutilating uh, children um, and how corporate America and the news media are completely on that side of uh, on that side of the issue. So yes, things have changed completely, utterly. Um, I've described a picture in the book. This, this sums up how, how much things have changed. There was a, a picture of Midtown Manhattan on Easter uh, back in the mm-hmm. 50s, and the buildings were all uh, lit up like crosses. And now the holy month is uh, June, which is Pride Month, and all the buildings are are lit up uh, with uh, with uh, uh, rain, r- rainbow colors. So th- that's how dramatically things have changed in not very much time. I mean, I, in in a previous book called Fake Science, I I, I looked at the r- references to transgender in the New York Times from year to year to year. And prior to the Obergefell decision, transgender was hardly ever used as a standalone term. It was used as a part of LGBT, but never as a standalone term. Once Obergefell hit, uh, the, and, and they needed another issue to keep their sexual revolution and their new religion on the boil, they started mentioning transgender, and it went to, uh, I don't know, 700 times uh, a year. Uh, which means in every single newspaper at least once. And that's why I eventually unsubscribed to the, to cancel my subscription to the New York Times. And that just shows you how much uh, that ideology and that new faith has, has overtaken uh, the, the power centers of our country. You also mentioned how the 60s radicals on college campuses are now today's college professors and heads of academia in the 50s, that wasn't the case. It was more conservative academia. There were family people. Well, that, that's right. Um, um, and, and it's an old story at this point, uh, how radical the, uh, the, the, the campuses have become. And, and I put that in there just to sort of build the case uh, of, how, of, of how things have so radically changed over the years. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the professors in the 60s themselves were not necessarily 60s radicals. They, they were the people who were threatened by the 60s radicals, it eventually caved into the 60s radicals, and then the 60s radicals later, later occupied all of the uh, uh, PowerPoints um, in, in, in academia. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's swept all across our country. I tell the story in there about a, a, a guy that I used to know fairly well who had a very big job, top job, at uh, what was then called, uh, uh, I guess it was Time Inc. And then it became Time Warner. But I think he, he, his time was at Time Inc. And uh, it was early on in the LGBT kerfuffle 
and a young man came into his office and and uh, said that that he wanted to put up a, a rainbow sticker and could he? And my friend said, no, you can't say no anymore. Because if you do say no, you're you're going to lose your job. You're going to be sent into re-education. I did a story, and I mentioned this in the book. Um, I did a story some years ago about employees at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, the fourth largest financial institution in the world, and they were quizzed. There was a survey sent out by top management to every single employee in the world, and one of the questions was, "Are you LGBT or an ally?" So you had to choose. Huh. You had to say that you supported this this ideology. And employees came to me to, in this in this story to say that they were genuinely worried about their their employment um, and what would happen to them if if they did not answer this particular question. So it's it's um, and gosh, you look at you look at the annual ratings of the human rights campaign, corporate LGBT friendliness. Here's for every virtually every Fortune 500 company has a hundred percent rating, um, which, which means you know benefits for partners and sex change operations and and all sorts of things. So uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> faithful Catholics and other Christians are really behind the eight ball when it comes to the power centers of this of of our society. And I say it's just where we want them. <laughs> it's just where we, <laughs> you know, one of my jokes is that, uh, you know, he has called upon the likes of us against all the power centers of the world because Jesus wants all the credit. And I say, fine. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the, the apostles were not the A team of their time. You know, they didn't go to the Harvard of their time. You know, I didn't, didn't, most of us don't. We're, we're against most of those people that did. Um, and I say, fine. I said, you know, there's the more is the glory um, in our eventual victory. And one of the points that I make in, in the book is that future generations will look back upon this generation with great envy that they couldn't be here with us right now. We look at folks of our age, any generation looks back upon previous generations who did heroic things. We look back upon, you know, the, the, the generations that fought the Second World War, that lived through the Depression, that, that fought the Civil War in this country. And, and we look back with great admiration that they did this amazing thing. That's us. That's us. And I am firmly convinced that future generations will look back upon with great envy upon this generation. And that's why I also tell people that they can't miss it. But given everything you say there and you lay out in your book, in Austin, how corporate America is not on the side of the Catholic Church or Christian morality, isn't that a tough battle to take on? You're saying that faithful Catholics and Christians, this is the time to stand up for what you believe in and what the church teaches. Well, uh, well, Absolutely. This is the time that he sent us to. I mean, you know, we cannot live in the past. Oh, gee whiz, I wish I lived in the 50s when everybody believed. And I wish I lived in the 50s when they lit up the midtown skyscrapers with crosses at Easter. You know, we can't live in the past. We can't live in the past and say, oh, golly, I wish I lived in the Middle Ages. And there were torchlight processions through the streets. This is the time that he sent us to. Now, not everybody can do what I do. And that is to be so upfront and out there on these particular issues. Uh, because people can lose their jobs. Mm. Uh, but there, there, there are many things that people can do. Um, they can contribute money to yeah. organizations that are doing this kind of work. 
Um, they can go to a, they can go to a school board meeting and shake the hand of the lone school board member who is standing up for traditional morality. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of little things that they can do. I wrote a column now some years ago called I No Longer Say Chair. And what I mean by that is to give up on political correctness. Um, I say chairman now, and I don't care who's offended. There's this thing that, that has cropped up in, in the public square, this term. Have you heard this term, sichette? No. No, you haven't. You are sichette. That is to say, you're cisgender and you're heterosexual. Okay. So they've, they've invented this new term for you and me and that we are cisgette. Uh, utterly reject that. Um, these are, th this is a purely political term, which was created by the sexual left uh, to gain an upper hand. And, and I say, draw the line. We no longer say anything like you want us to say. Uh, and that is something that people can do in everyday lives. Uh, there are a lot of little things that people can do short of standing up with a megaphone like I do and, mm -hmm. and taking the incoming fire. I would never be able to get a job in, in government at this point. I would never be able to get a job in uh, corporate America because of the article on me in, uh, in Wikipedia and other things in social media. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Austin Ruse, author of Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. Austin heads up the Center for Family and Human Rights, CFAM. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I did look up the Wikipedia entry. You were described by some as leading a hate group. Yeah. And uh, no, none other than Father James Martin uh, has also attacked you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he has. And I have criticized him too. Yeah, you know, there's this group called the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, which is a hard left. I mean, it's a hard left organization that has this thing called the, the hate list. And they, and they put Christian groups on their hate list in order to smear them to, it's a blacklist. For instance, because we're on the hate list, we cannot use the Amazon Smile program, um, you know, things like that. So, you know, it, it is both an annoyance, a hindrance, and, um, and a badge of honor to be on the SPLC hate list. But yeah, that's on my, that's on my Wikipedia uh, uh, page, um, you know, and, and so people think I run a hate group, but I don't. You know, we're just a group of faithful Catholics um, arguing in the public square. We, we first ended up on the SPLC hate list because we advised the government of Belize on their treaty obligations with regard to sodomy. They were being pressured by lawyers groups saying that there's a human right to sodomy in, in UN human rights treaties. And we just pointed out to them, this is not the case. There is, there is no human rights treaty that deals with this question. And because we advised the governor of Belize on this particular question, we ended up on the hate list. So legally advising a government on treaties will land you on, a, uh, on the SPLC hate list. So it is what it is. The Catholic Church in America today, in terms of 
these battles? Are they handling it well? Are, they, are there any victories to report? The church is very divided, even in the pews. There are pro-life Catholics, pro-choice Catholics. There are liberal priests, conservative priests. There are bishops that are at odds with each other. Where does that leave things? I gave a talk uh, now many years ago in Ireland. Um, I gave, I did a speaking tour in Ireland, and it was a remarkable experience, by the way. Mm. You know, one thing that people don't mention about Ireland, they talk about how green it is. <laughs> they don't talk about how dramatic the sky of Ireland is. I guess because it's an island, but you look up, and there, it is the most, it is the most <laughs> remarkable sight that you see above Ireland. And I, I, we, I did ten talks in eleven days starting in Dublin and going all the way around and then up to Belfast. And anyway, so one night- What year was this? Uh, this was a long time. This is maybe 12 years ago. It was okay. a long time. It was called the Wake Up Ireland Tour. And it was organized by Patrick McChrystal, who is the head of Human Life International Ireland. Okay. And uh, yeah, it was a remarkable experience. But anyway, so one night, this little old lady comes up and she she said in her Irish accent, like, like you have, beautiful Irish accent. And she says- uh, she says, Austin, everything you say is all well and good, but I'm going to wait to hear what the bishop has to say. And I'm going to shake her <laughs> and say, no, no, you have a baptismal right and obligation to engage these issues in the public square, and you do not need the bishop's permission. You don't need his blessing. You don't even have to tell him what you're doing, uh, living out your baptismal promises. So um, I, I, I would say that I would wish that the bishops were more engaged on these issues. Uh, I wish priests were more engaged on these issues. Absolutely, that's true. You know, there are several collections at church throughout the year for poverty. There's not a single collection for the life issues. Well, there are pro-life collections outside the churches, and there's, there's pro-life months. There's not a single collection in church you know, a second collection. There are many second collections for poverty. There is not a single collection, a uh, second collection for, for the life issues. I wish that there was a second collection for the life issues, for instance. Having said all this, the bishops have never gone squirrely on the life issues. Think about that. The bishops have never gone squirrely on, on the great third rail, contraception. Mm. Uh, the bishops have never gone squirrely on marriage. So, on the one hand, they have not done enough. On the other hand, they have held firm to the teachings of the church on these most important issues. Um, and even if the bishops aren't as involved as we wish them to be, does not let us off the hook for the work that we are supposed to be doing. And that's what I tell everybody. It doesn't matter if your bishop is not involved you know, get your sign and go to a demonstration, stand outside of an abortion clinic and say the rosary, you know, talk to the women who are going inside, send a check to uh, a group that's working on pornography. You don't need the bishops to get involved. You have a lot of interesting historical side stories in your book. One was the time John Kerry was taking a run for the presidency. And then there was a whole dust up over him receiving communion and could priests, could he receive communion in church? And apparently there was some memo or missive sent from Rome, which landed in the hands of former Cardinal McCarrick, who you say in the book, essentially hid it away from his colleagues. 
Yeah, th there was the bishops meeting that year and there was a task force of bishops looking into the question of communion for pro-choice politicians. And there was a document that was issued uh, by then uh, Cardinal Ratzinger who said very clearly that they should, that pro-abortion politicians should not receive communion. Uh, moreover, that pro-abortion politicians should not uh, receive honors and, uh, uh, and platforms at Catholic institutions. And this was handed off to Cardinal McCarrick, who was then chairing the, the, the task force. And he merely paraphrased the document and basically hid the truth of this, uh, of what Ratzinger actually said. And then the, the real memo was published in an Italian newspaper and it found its way into the hands of Cardinal Burke, who publicized what the memo really said. And the, the memo is quite good. Um, the other interesting thing about John Kerry is when he, that he lost the, the Catholic vote. Um, I mean, he lost it substantially. I'm convinced it was because even not fully faithful Catholics were a little uneasy with the idea of having a dissenting Catholic in the White House. Now, that's utterly changed since we, now we have yeah. Joe Biden. Uh, when Obama was invited, and this is, this is in the book, when Obama was invited to, the, uh, to Notre Dame to, to receive an honorary degree and an award, um, I, I asked at the time George Weigel how many bishops could be expected to protest. And he said about 35, and he was exactly right, it was 35. But then fast forward a couple of years, and uh, when, the, uh, uh, when Obamacare was debated and abortion was in, was in Obamacare, how many bishops stepped up? Oh, I'm, I'm mistelling the story. It was um, when Obamacare came up and abortion was in, the, uh, was in the bill, 200 bishops stood up and complained. Every ordinary plus other bishops stood up and complained. So, you know, mm -hmm. we wish that they would do more, but at key moments, they've done exactly the right thing. So, you know, I'm torn. I'm torn. What do you take of our current incumbent, Joe Biden, a practicing Catholic, uh, he goes to church, and that has been touted in the White House when a reporter asked at a press conference, what's the president's policy on abortion. And she says, well, uh, the response was to the effect, well, I have to remind you that Joe Biden is a practicing Catholic and he goes to church. And that sort of was the answer. Are you disturbed by um, how he parlays his Catholic faith and support for abortion rights? You know, uh, I wrote a column uh, early in his administration for Crisis Magazine, I write every other week for Crisis Magazine. The, the headline that I wrote was uh, Joe Biden eats and drinks his own spiritual death. You know, he is an unfaithful Catholic, aggressively promoting a, a, an objectively evil practice. And yet he goes to, he goes to communion and, and takes communion unworthily. So it, it is deeply disturbing. I really was convinced that just as what happened to John Kerry would happen to Joe Biden, and, and he did lose the Catholic vote. John Kerry lost the Catholic vote. Um, the there, there are two votes mm. among Catholics. So there's the generics, and then there's the faithful Catholic vote. Uh, the generics are anybody who says that they're Catholic and also people who are Catholic who don't really practice the faith and uh, object to the faith. And there's the faithful Catholic vote. So Kerry lost both. Uh, Biden lost both. 
Um, so I, I think that Catholics are generally uneasy with Joe Biden as, as president. I mean, there's a whole coterie of, of sort of politically left-wing Catholics around certain websites and, and publications that, that cheer him on. But, um, you know, I, I, it's, it is deeply disturbing how he uses his faith to advance objectively evil policies. Well, that, that's an important distinction that Joe Biden did get Catholic votes, clearly, but they are of the kind you described, left-leaning, pro-choice, whereas the, quote-unquote, the faithful Catholics went to Trump, right? And then Trump's not Catholic. His wife is Catholic. I mean, he's surrounded by a lot of Catholics. And you wonder sometimes, as he have gone through some kind of conversion? It's pretty remarkable what has occurred there. There was a group called uh, Catholics for Trump, which is still around, and Priests for Life under Father Frank Pavone is a big promoter of Donald Trump. This has been this whole, this is not something we would have seen in America several generations ago. It would have been Kennedy and all of those yeah. lawmakers. I sometimes think about John Kennedy and, and his faith. You know, he was, um, he was a sinner, but I'm not aware that he was a dissenter. And what we have today is, you know, Joe Biden, who appears to be, you know, faithful to his wife, but he's a dissenter. And, and, that's, and that's what we see today. So there has been a fundamental change in um, how we view Catholic politicians. And yeah, there, there was a big swing from Democrats to the Republicans uh, among uh, blue collar Catholics, precisely because of the social issues. Um, and, and this began long ago with uh, my, my friend, George Marlin, who is a banker in Philadelphia and has written several books, um, says that it began with the, uh, with the John Lindsay campaign uh, for mayor of New York um, and, uh, and Bill Buckley ran against him and made great hay on the social issues. And Nixon noticed that and decided to run on the social issues. Um, so it has brought a lot of blue collar voters uh, in, into the conservative and Republican ranks. Marlon points out that, uh, the, uh, that that demographic cohort is dying off and we wonder what's going to happen next uh, and we shall have to see. Yeah, so I don't know. I wrote a book uh, that I published uh, at the, at the, before the last election called The Catholic Case for Trump that uh, Regnery brought out. And I looked very deeply at um, the policies of, of Donald Trump. And they were really quite remarkable uh, in terms of Catholics. Uh, he was the most pro-life president that we've ever had. And he was, he was pro-life, I, I say, in a granular way. That is to say, in small ways that people would never know, about. for instance, in the work that we do at the United Nations. Uh, not a lot of people pay attention to what's going on at the United States, but he did remarkable things at the UN on the life issues and other places too. So yeah, he was a very interesting guy in terms of our issues. And, you know, we do wonder if he had a genuine conversion experience, particularly on the life issues. Why is America so divided politically? Has it, is it related to this whole issue of morality, uh, the culture wars? going back to school, prayer, and abortion? I, I, I think so. I, I think the fundamental divide in the United States is over culture war issues. And I would point out to your, your viewers and listeners that the culture war is a war of aggression from the left upon the right. 
because they're the ones that struck down prayer in school. They're the ones that fulminated for uh, striking down laws against obscenity. They're the ones who pushed for uh, contraception, gay marriage, sodomy, and, and, and all the rest. It, it's so funny that we get accused for prosecuting the culture war when we have only ever been on defense. I mean, just, just look at, at, at what happens with these few moments of offense that our side has taken with regard to transgenderism, for instance. We take it to the governor of, of South Dakota and she vetoes it. We take it to the governor of Arkansas and he vetoes it. Um, so even our side um, is a little hinky on these particular issues. So yes, I, I would just underscore that I, I do believe that the culture war is what has essentially divided the United States. And, and it has only gotten worse with the rise of the radical homosexual movement, the rise of the radical transgender movement, um, and the fact that they are now imposing this on school children. I mean, I, I think in some ways, therefore, Rod Dreher is right on the soft totalitarianism. They are coming for us. There's no question about that. And yes, so I think the fundamental divide in this country is not over economics and, and it's not over foreign policy. I think it's the moral issues which are essentially dividing the United States. Well, others would pick you up on that and they would look at income inequality, outsourcing of jobs, how communities have been completely gutted because a lot of these jobs have been shipped off to China. And that is a big issue with a lot of people. But I wouldn't say that those issues necessarily divide America because, um, the, you know, the, the, the issue of outsourcing and taking jobs offshore um, used to be a Democrat issue. It's still an issue for, Ber for Bernie Sanders. It's an issue for Donald Trump. There are points of agreement where left and right can absolutely agree. I mean, for instance, um, there, there is an evolving agreement among some on the left and some on the right with regard to American foreign policy and adventurism overseas. Uh, you know, Donald Trump didn't start any wars and a lot of people were happy yeah. about that. Uh, a lot of us who were cheerleaders for George Bush and defenders of the war in Iraq now look back with regret upon that. Um, so I would say that those things don't truly divide. There may be disagreements, but I don't think there's true division on, on those kind of issues. I think there's true division on the moral issues. So if it came to labor rights and the rights to organize, would there not be clear distinctions between left and right, between the Republican and Democrats and that? I would urge you to consider, and I would urge your readers, to your, your, your listeners and viewers, to read uh, Tucker Carlson's book, Ship of Fools. Listen to Tucker Carlson. Listen to J.D. Vance. And, and you'll see that they're, listen to Sarab Amari of the, of the New York Post and others. There, there is... There is a change afoot uh, where there is, a, there is a coming together of left and right on, on key issues, including on labor organizing. Um, so I, I would say that there may, as you say, you, you use the word distinctions. Um, yeah, but that's not the same thing as division. Uh, mm. These are healthy debates. But on yeah. moral questions, I think there's a profound divide yeah. uh, that, 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 that has utterly changed our politics. I mean, look at it this way. What is the key issue that divides people when it comes to Supreme Court picks? It's abortion. It's yeah. even contraception. It's sexual issues. Um, it's not labor issues. It's not immigration issues. It's, it's those issues. So I, I, I think that's probably the best barometer of how and why we are divided in this country. 
Now, I want to be very clear, Austin, you don't hate people who identify as gay or lesbian or transgender. They're all children of God. It seems to me what uh, you're challenging is the ideology that they're pushing throughout our society in America and through laws and the, the far left secular agenda that they're advancing. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the debate, I don't know anybody who wants to um, make sodomy illegal, for instance. So the debate is really over ideology. My criticism is not over the run-of-mill, run-of-the-mill fellow who has same-sex attraction. It's, it's over the elites of that movement who are seeking to impose this on the rest of us. So my debate is with the human rights campaign. My debate is with GLAAD. Uh, and, and other radical homosexual uh, institutions that present themselves as mainstream, but they're really not. So yeah, my, my, my debate is not with, you know, the average gay guy. It's, it's with the elites who are pushing an ideology this very moment on school children in, uh, in Virginia and California and many other, in many other states. That's, that's the fundamental debate. Now, because you disagree with that, you're called a hater. Um, but it's, it's a policy. It's a policy. Uh, debate. Do you see any reasons for hope that we will turn the corner and we'll go back to a place we're at maybe in the 50s where family values will be restored? We'll see abortion ended in America will be no longer legal. Well, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily see that on the horizon. This is a long war. And on the abortion question, for instance, I, I, people are, are weary of the abortion debate. And I point out to people I did this morning that um, 58 years elapsed between the Plessy decision, separate and equal, to Brown that struck down Plessy, 58 years. So people have to understand that these questions take a long time to decide. Uh, one of the problems that, that, we are, that we have entered into over the last 50 years, it's so many of these decisions have been constitutionalized. So they, they were taken out of the hands of, of, of the democratic process. Take gay marriage, for instance, take marriage. You know, the, the movement to protect traditional marriage, man, woman, marriage, won 32 statewide races and, and the other side won two. So it, it was very clear where the American people stood on these questions. I mean, we even won an election on, on, on traditional marriage in California. Uh, we won them uh, during democratic primaries in Missouri. It is made doubly difficult for us that we now have to overturn constitutional decisions of the Supreme Court. But so did the civil rights people. Plessy had to be overturned by Brown. So people, so I, I tell people, don't be so concerned with winning. Be concerned with doing the right thing today, tomorrow, and the next day. And the truth will always win out. Homosexuality is not the truth. Transgenderism is not the truth. These, these, these are anti-truths. And the truth will always eventually win out. Uh, and what we have to do is do the very best we can with what's been given us. And always remember, they will look back upon us with envy that they couldn't be with here, here with us when everything seems so desperate. Now, you've had some remarkable late night victories in the wee hours at the United Nations with yeah. your group. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, it's it's less pushing pro-life and pro-family laws. It's, it's, it's less that than blocking the initiatives of the other side. The other side has spent many, many years attempting to make abortion a universally recognized human right in UN documents. And so they've repeatedly tried to redefine the family and they've lost. They've, they've, over the last 15 years, they've tried desperately to make sexual orientation and gender identity a new category of non-discrimination in international law, and they can't get any traction at all. Um, so yes, um, it, it just goes to show you what a small group of very determined people can do uh, if they hang together and stay for the long haul. So yeah, we've had many, many victories over the years at the United Nations, but the other side is there today fighting for their cause. And so we're there fighting against them. So, but, but we have had a great deal of, of luck and, and, and actually many victories in UN negotiations. It's a very influential body. Uh, so whatever comes out of the UN has reverberations across the globe. I mean, it has an agenda. People have noted also that the Biden administration has uh, an abortion ag- agenda globally. And we've seen some rollbacks on initiatives taken by the Trump administration on funding of Planned Parenthood. So that's not a very encouraging sign for pro-lifers. Well, no, but, uh, you know, we're going to beat them, too. Biden came in uh, and we just heard the news that uh, they're going to include abortion in in the annual human rights report of every country in the the world. Um, And we'll fight that. Uh, You know, it's it's he has given us this thing to do. And some days you win and some days you lose. And, you, you know, you just hope that, you know, at the end of your life, he says, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and that's, that's truly what our work is really about, um, is, is defending the innocent and doing the right thing uh, by God Almighty. So, yeah, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and you just live to fight another day. It doesn't bother me in the least that, that Joe Biden has done these things, because in a few years, we're going to beat them all back. T.S. Eliot also said there are no lost causes because there are no won causes. Um, and you go back to the Garden of Eden, and it's the same fight as it was then, it is, as it is now, yay, until the end of time. I enjoyed your book tremendously. And one of the, I don't want to give too much of it away, Austin, people have to go out and buy it. But near the end, you catalog a lot of basically modern day saints and a lot of metrics about the Catholic Church, which I wasn't really aware of. You mentioned, for example, the case of a young person in Paris who had this illness, they lived this very um, holy life. And then there was another, numerous cases. Just tell us about some of that. Well, it's part of the case that I make that we're living through one of the most remarkable epics the church has ever known. We have lived in the time of Mother Teresa. We have lived in the time of uh, St. Jose Maria Escriva. We have lived in the time, I I even say this, not in the book, but in speeches, Billy Graham. I, I think what, what was a great saint. Um, we lived in the time of John Paul II. We lived in the we have lived in the time of uh, Gianna Mola. A lot of people don't know Gianna Mola, but she was a great saint. Uh, and then I tell the story of these children that I know, um, and I wrote a book about it called "Littlest Suffering Souls: Children Whose Short Lives Point Us to Christ." And they were three children, two from right around here. Uh, I know all of their families children who suffered greatly, died young, and brought many people to the faith. One of them I tell is uh, little um, Audrey Stevenson of, uh, of Paris, 
um, who was born into a moderately Catholic family. And she brought, as a three and four-year-old, brought the faith into their family. Um, her mother, my friend Lillian, um, one day noticed that uh, Audrey was limping when they were walking home from school and uh, wanted to know why. And she discovered that Audrey had put pencils in her shoes. Lillian said to Audrey, why? And she said, je résiste, I resist. She was teaching herself mortification and nobody had taught her what mortification was. Somehow she knew this child. She ended up dying a few years later of, of leukemia, but she inspired Catholics all over France and indeed all over the world. Uh, prayer groups sprung up while she was suffering uh, all over France. You know, dad saying the rosary with their children for the first time ever. So, and when I published these stories as a series of columns at a website called The Catholic Thing, I got emails from all over the world of other examples just like this of young people suffering greatly, dying young and bringing many people to the faith because they are also demonstrating what is a human being, which is the great debate of our time, as I said before, what is the human person? And they are showing that even a Down syndrome boy here in Great Falls is a human being. Leonard Leo's daughter, Margaret, who was born with spina bifida and died young, is a human being, you know, with dignity and worth. And so these little children demonstrate to us one of the major points in the book, and that is that we have lived in a time of great saints and spiritual giants. You noted the increase in vocations in a lot of the religious orders, the more conservative ones. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, the Sisters of Life, if you look at the, the, the monks at uh, Clerky Creek Abbey, if you look at uh, Father Groeschel's group, uh, you'll see that, you know, fully habited Orthodox religious orders are bursting at the seams. And you look at this remarkable renewal, renewal of Catholic education around the country, you know, the renewal of Catholic universities, you know, Christendom, Steubenville, Benedictine, Belmont Abbey, uh, Wyoming Catholic College, uh, Thomas Aquinas College, East and West. Um, if you look at all these new uh, and revived Catholic publishing houses, you know, I published at TAN. Uh, I published, I'm publishing at Sophia Institute Press, um, but there are others, Angelico Press, that many people haven't heard of. You know, it, it, it's like you, when I was converting, I couldn't figure out what to read and nobody could tell me what to read until I discovered Ignatius Press. So look at Ignatius Press. It, 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 there are remarkable signs of life all over this country. And indeed, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church is growing by leaps and bounds all over the world. Um, so, yeah, there, there are many, many great signs um, uh, of life in the Catholic Church. And I make that case in, in the book. You know, some Catholics and Christians and people with a moral fiber get discouraged when you look at places like New York State, which passed a law effectively legalizing infanticide. Well, sure. Like I said, you know, there, there are bad signs all over the place. I mean, that, that, was, uh, that was a defining moment for many people. I mean, I honestly think that uh, Joe Biden being elected and being so aggressively pro-abortion is going to be a defining moment for many people. Uh, Francis Kissling, who used to run Catholics for Free Choice, said that the uh, partial birth abortion debate uh, that was led by my friend uh, Rick Santorum, uh, who lives here in Northern Virginia. She said, it drove away even moderately 
pro-choice Catholics because they saw the brutality of abortion for the very first time in, in partial birth abortion. So there are defining moments when the other side goes a little bit too far. And I, and I think that Joe Biden is, is, is going to be a little bit that for, for a lot of people. I think he'll make, I think he'll, I think he'll make converts to the pro-life cause. Your message then is this is a great time to be a faithful Catholic. Take on the battle and don't sort of go into your bunker and hide and, and take on the challenge that it's a great time to be a Catholic. That, that's the message of the book. And, and I think I make a very strong case. Well, Austin, the name of your book again is Under Siege. It's no finer time to be a faithful Catholic. It's a great read. Thank you for being on my show. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. 